Hi everyone, this is Sam Black with Drafting Archetypes, and this week I'm going to be talking about drafting multicolor decks in Phyrexia All Will Be One. As always, the notes are available, follow along at patreon.com slash draftingarchetypes for patrons. And this is an archetype that I uh, kind of intentionally avoided early in the format because I identified very early on that you couldn't really afford to spend time fixing your mana, the format's very fast, it's very punishing, and prioritizing fixing and trying to play a lot of colors seemed very dangerous. All of that's still true. This isn't really uh, like a real archetype. It, I mean, it is in that it's a set of cards that uh, essentially work well together that you can draft. But it's not the kind of thing that's like an intentional part of the format on the design side, as far as I know, and it's not something that a lot of people are doing. It's definitely not something that you can look at 17 lands data for and get any ideas about. So this episode is uh, going to not really rely on 17 lands so much as my own thoughts and experience. And as such, I certainly can't tell you how it stacks up in aggregates to the other decks in the format. I don't think that this is something you should set out to do. I, this, you know, I've, there have been several formats where I've felt like you just need to understand that you can play a lot of colors and then you can have all the powerful cards and your deck will work in a certain way and it's going to be really strong really consistently. Right now, Strixhaven is back on Arena and uh, people have been watching me stream that the past couple of days and I've had a lot of success uh, generally playing a lot of colors in that format. That would be a format uh, where I feel like if you understand what's going on with multicolor, it's just a strong thing that you can do. Uh, Brothers War was another similar situation. This is not that. I am not coming to you today and saying, I figured it out. Here's how you play a lot of colors. You can just kind of do this consistently and you'll have a great deck. Instead, the purpose of this uh, deck and the utility of this knowledge is I think that if you have powerful cards in an archetype or color that isn't open in your seat. It can be useful sometimes because the strong cards in the set are so strong to know how to draft such that you can uh, use those powerful cards when you're in a lane that's not open or just navigate a draft where you can't really figure out what lane you're supposed to be in. So as always, anytime we're talking about a multicolor deck, uh, the best mana fixing is the draw step. So kind of the more colors you're playing and the weirder your mana base is, the more you want to play a long game. Also, as you're adding more colors to your deck, you're probably doing it to add more power to your deck. And the more power you've added to your deck, the more comfortable you should be going long. So of course, in general, you're going to want to be drafting your multicolor decks as control decks that are trying to extend the length of the game uh, as kind of their like default action most of the time. Obviously, that's not the natural tendency of winning decks in this format. Winning decks in this format capitalize on the opponent stumbling and seek to end the game quickly. However, this is a format where blocking is, I still believe, as I've said earlier, pretty good. Uh, the creatures have abilities that do extra things when they damage a player, and they have those, like the aggressive creatures have that text instead of text, that makes it difficult to block them. So if your opponent has, you know, some kind of toxic creature, it will usually have 
you know, slightly smaller stats than a not toxic creature at a similar cost. And uh, your not toxic creature can just block their toxic creature as long as you, you know, have it at the same time. And you can avoid getting toxic on you. You can avoid getting corrupted. And then their deck's a little bit less efficient. And hopefully you can get to this long game that you've been drafting toward. So you probably want to be base green, uh, largely because of Contagious Vorak, which I just checked before recording this uh, episode. It is currently the winningest common on 17 lands and certainly the most important one for this archetype because, of course, uh, looking at four cards and finding a land can help you find your colors. And uh, this deck that's trying to get more power in it is likely to be playing a few more expensive cards, which hitting lands with the Vorak helps you cast. Also, in a pinch, Thirsting Roots, the sorcery that searches your library for a basic land, can help fix your mana. So, and then Green has, you know, some reasonable defensive creatures and stuff. Cheap plays to not fall too far behind. I'm talking about cards like Rustvine Cultivator, the one mana one two that can tap for oil and spend oil to untap lands. Copper Longlegs, the one three reach spider that can sack to proliferate. Icker Spit Basilisk, the three mana one three death touch toxic one. Those are all reasonable defensive bodies for a base green deck to play if you're just trying to block to go longer. In my notes, I have like a very long list of like basically every common and every color that you would want to play, loosely ranked by how strong I imagine they would be in like a deck that's playing three or four colors. I'm not going to read off that entire list because it'd be a little bit tedious. And I have both the like master list and then also that list broken down by uh, color. Reading over the exact same cards twice in a row isn't very helpful. And I think grouping it by color is kind of both easier to grok and I think it's just easier to talk about that way, really. The other thing is, you know, your deck, like, you're not looking to be five color. You're probably, this this deck is probably like two and a splash, one and two splashes, one and three splashes, two and two splashes, usually three color, sometimes four, only five if you're like four with an Atraxa or something like that. Figuring out your colors is important. Figuring out your base colors is particularly important, unless one color is very, very open, in which case you're going to be like one color with two splashes or something. When that's not the case, you likely won't have enough one and two mana plays in your single primary color to be able to um, have the number that you're looking for to not fall behind in the early game. So if you have two colors that you have like a good number of colored sources for, then you can have an early game that is cards of both of those colors to help you get to the later game where you have time to find your mana and play your cards of other colors. So you want to figure out basically like what are the two colors roughly that you're playing cheap cards of. And then if you have kind of this like master list of all the cards you might want to play, uh, the fewer sources you have or expect to have of any color of mana in your deck, the more you want to penalize the cheap cards that require that kind of mana, especially the cheap creatures that you're like always looking to play on curve. And then if you can't, you know, play your two drop on two, it, it its value plummets really quickly. The cards that each color offers that appeal to me in this kind of archetype. I'm looking primarily for removal 
uh, cheap defensive creatures and expensive creatures that offer card advantage in some form. That's kind of the guiding principle. And then it's just a matter of like uh, weighing, I guess, how good any given card is at the role in that space that it's filling. So in green, for example, I think the best card, as I mentioned, is Contagious Forak, pretty unambiguously. It's a lot better than the other green cards, and again, I think better than all the other commons. Followed by Rustvine Cultivator, followed by Copper Longlegs, followed by Thirsting Roots. But again, this is like, I would take Thirsting Roots over uh, the other cards, but only if I need it, and I'm hoping not to need it. But if it's early in the draft, and I don't know if I'll need it, I'll miss it more than I'll miss the other green commons if I needed it. And so um, given that I don't think the other green commons are generally early in the draft going to be expected to make my deck a lot better, I'd rather hedge with the Thirsting Roots. So Thirsting Roots followed by Icarus Bit Basilisk, which is just going to be a solid three drop, followed by Oil Gorger Troll, which is low because I don't necessarily expect to have a lot of oil in this kind of deck. And... I don't think it's a particularly exceptional five drop, followed by Ruthless Predation, which I might be too low on, but I think that you want to be able to reliably cast your cheap spells on the, like, you know, if it costs two mana, you want to be able to cast it on turn two to stay alive, and Ruthless Predation often can't do that, and this is a format where you often can't afford to be, like, really choosy with your removal. You're just kind of trying to fire it off to kill something that fall behind, and predation it isn't like optimal at doing that. A nice thing that predation does is it like makes your creature bigger to push some extra damage. You're not taking advantage of that at all here. Um, so it's like sorcery speed, conditional removal. It's very low on the list of removal spells you would like to have. And with access to all the colors, you can ideally find something better. So in red, I think the top priority is hex gold slash. I do think removal is important. I think. Being able to trade up on mana is huge. I think having spells that cost one is really important. And it's basically like the best thing you can do for one mana in a defensive deck. So huge priority for Hexgold Slash. But Axiom Engraver, this is another absolutely premium card. It's really, really strong if you're going late because it can help you avoid flooding out. It blocks pretty well early. And it can discard cards that are of a color that you don't have the mana to cast, help you find your missing colored lands. Really just perfect for any sort of control deck, but even more perfect for a deck with more colors in it. Followed by Chimney Rebel. This card's just so good. Uh, making two bodies that can both block can really help stabilize a board. Uh, so even though you're not usually getting a lot of value out of the haste, Part of the Chimney Rebel, I still think the card is just good enough to be a priority, even over other good red cards like Volt Charge and Barbed Batterfist, which are the next two in that order that I would prioritize. Volt Charge, removal's good, but I'm pretty low on Volt Charge overall. I do think that trading up on mana any amount in this format is huge, and Volt Charge usually trades down. And I don't think that you often get a ton of value out of the proliferate. And I think that your opponent sometimes does get value out of the thing that you end up full charging. So, you know, it's a removal spell. It's playable. But I don't think that it very frequently nets you a lot of extra value such that I think it's 
not quite what I would consider like premium removal. Barbed batter fist. It's a good, you know, early blocker that gives you an object that has some utility, but it's not, you know, a perfect defensive card. Like the fact that if your opponent plays a crawling chorus and you play barbed batter fist, your block is really bad, uh, makes it not as good defensively as, you know, a much lower pick like copper long legs that in addition to being able to block that crawling parse well, can also block a pestilent siphoner and a uh, duelist and you know what, whatever you might be getting attacked by, often in a way that's more profitable, where the barbed batter fist is going to be a little bit more conditionally defensively useful. And then Furnace Strider. Furnace Strider is a really, really strong card, but not what I'm looking for in my top end here, because I do... Kind of want more like upfront value in terms of like material advantage. Uh, again, Furnace Strider is really good for pressing an advantage or turning a corner, but I'm hoping to draft this deck in a way that's like so grindy that that's not really what I'm looking for. But it's very, very big. It's a good card. No problem with it being your top end. Also, all of the five drops are, of course, deprioritized because you just don't need that many of them and all of them are kind of deprioritized in the format as a whole so i think you're going to get enough and like you know toward the middle of the draft if you're if you don't have any expensive creatures it's very easy to start prioritizing kind of whatever expensive creatures you see and they're going to be impactful enough and you're going to have enough of them and then finally shrapnel slinger the tutu that can sacrifice a creature to kill an artifact playable two drop can block uh, sometimes randomly kills a really valuable artifact late in the game, but is also just, you know, like not very exciting most of the time. In white, the big draw to white is Indoctrination Attendant. This card's awesome. The more of them you have, the more you want to prioritize stuff like Barbed Batter Fist that can be, you know, that'll easily be something you can pick up for additional value. But Indoctrination Attendant often gives you card advantage, frees your creatures from planner disruption and mesmerizing dose, blocks really well. Just just a great card. The Indoctrination Attendant, followed by Planner Disruption, which is the two-mana pacifism, followed by Incisor Glider, which is in this deck basically trying to be a better copper long legs. You're really there for the 1-3 reach side of your 1-3 flyer that can potentially pump your team and all that. But if white is a base color, then Glider is just a great defensive creature followed by Basilica Shepherd. This one's penalized for costing white-white. You want to be really careful that you're going to be able to cast it, but it is, you know, very strong finisher if you're there. Followed by Sinew Dancer. This is a card that I generally think of as kind of only wanting in a deck that's going to get my opponent corrupted, which I'm not really expecting in this deck. But I think that having a creature that you can play on turn one that can like block three ones and stuff and then also just isn't blank in the late game even if it's costing four mana in the very late game that can be uh, powerful sometimes you'll be able to turn it on means that if you are heavily white i think it's reasonable to include this in just a deck that's trying to be controlling rather than a toxic deck followed by mandible justicar and miran bardish Mandible Justicar is a great card. Lifelink works on defense, but this is a better aggressive card than defensive card, and I don't really expect it to be like heavily white or heavily artifacts in this kind of deck in a way that I'm going to take a lot of advantage of it. 
Miran Bardish is a fine, expensive play, but you know, worse even than Furnace Strider in this kind of deck. Black, you're basically looking for removal over value creatures, and that's basically all you're looking for. So Anoint with Affliction, top priority, great removal spell. That's the uh, Smother type card, exile creature with mana value three or less, and then exiles anything if your opponent's corrupted. Followed by Whisper of the Dross, which is the minus one, minus one proliferate instant. Not as good as Hexcold Slash, but again, anytime you can actually spend one mana to kill something, it's just so strong, and then the proliferate can give you some extra value. Followed by Testament Bearer, the four mana, four one that looks at three cards and puts one of them in your hand and the other two in the graveyard when it dies. If you're playing a defensive value game, this is just a great, um, it's just actually a really good card for that kind of strategy. Followed by Stinging Hive Master, the 3-2 that dies into a 1-1 Toxic. Followed by Cruel Grimnark, the 6-mana 5-5 Death Touch that makes your opponent discard a card when it enters, and if they can't, you gain 4 life. Followed by Blight Belly Rat as a random, moderately useful 2-drop. Then in blue, you're basically just looking at Taxi and Raptor, the 1-4 Flyer, Chrome Prowler, the 3-2 Flash Tap Thing Cat, and... Uh, in a pinch, Malkator's Watcher, the 1-1 one, one Flying Vigilance that draws a card when it dies. And then Evolving Wilds is a super high priority if you know that you're going to be playing multiple colors because you really don't want to have to fix with like Dune Mover and Prophetic Prism, but uh, you can if you don't get the Wilds. Also, Wilds and Vorak play really, really well together. The more you have, you know, the more Voraks you have, the better job Evolving Wilds, Wilds does of fixing your mana because you significantly increase your odds of hitting whatever color you're missing if Evolving Wilds is part of the range of uh, lands that you can hit with your Contagious Vorak. So Evolving Wilds is very high priority, and then Dune Mover is more of a filler playable uh, that can help your mana situation, and then Prophetic Prism is available in a pinch. But I would generally prefer to fix my mana with Dune Mover over Prophetic Prism uh, out of a desire to have a blocker on turn two rather than not. So everything about the order here is extremely fluid. It should change a lot based on your color balance and your curve. Those things are your top priority. You're looking to have a mana base that makes sense. You're looking to take cards, um, especially cheap cards, in your primary colors. You're looking to make sure that you have enough plays not to fall behind in the early game. Then the best version of this deck likely doesn't really care about three drops outside of Contagious Vorak. You really want a lot of twos, and so you can always play something on two, ideally also play something on one. And then if you have to play another, you know, two drop on turn three, like that's fine. And then you want the rest of your deck to be uh, the like four and five mana creatures that are like giving you card advantage. The extra value that you get out of a Testament Bearer or a Chimney Rabble or an Indoctrination Attendant over something like an Ickersplit Basilisk is so much greater than the extra value that you get out of an Ickersplit Basilisk over a Copper Longlegs or Axiom Engraver or Incisor Glider. Among commons, you just don't really get paid enough to want to make sure that you have three drops. Whereas again, I think that like once you get to four, your cards start pulling their weight in terms of giving you enough extra value to justify the mana you're spending on them. You really want to think about your curve in terms of here's my early stuff that keeps me alive. Here's my late stuff that meaningfully pulls me ahead. 
And then the middle stuff doesn't really have a place except for contagious Vorak, which kind of gives you the value that a four drop would give you, but happens to cost three. One of the big advantages of drafting this way is that you position yourself to take advantage of and play the powerful cards that you see later in a draft. Toward that end, anytime you're thinking about kind of like a weaker card that's in the colors that you're currently in versus stronger card that you might not want to play, but might make your deck quite a bit better if you want to shift your current color balance into a different space because of something that you open later. It might be good to take that stronger card in the other color to put yourself in a position that you can switch if you open something good. So to give a more precise example, if you're red-green and you think you might be splashing another color, maybe you have like an indoctrination attendant that you're thinking about splashing, and it's maybe late in pack one, and you could take a shrapnel slinger or you could take an incisor glider. Somehow there's an incisor glider late in pack one. Pretty unusual. You should probably take it as a signal, which is another reason that you'd be happy to pick it here. Take the glider over the slinger, even though there's a decent chance you end up staying red-green and you don't use the glider but you're not really going to miss the slinger most of the time. And if in pack two or pack three, you end up opening the Eternal Wanderer, then you'll be really happy that you have this white two drop so that you can kind of shift your early game and your mana base to have uh, enough white mana to play the Planeswalker and then also have uh, strong early drops that you kind of got with these speculative early picks that you didn't have to pay a large cost for. And you can just kind of like hedge with, you know, one or two cards that are potentially high impact if they happen to fit into your deck in any kind of like high leverage spot that you see them available in. So again, you always want to be looking at how much will I miss the card I'm giving up to like hedge in this way. And if it's something that you think that you'll miss, then don't hedge. But if it's something you won't miss, then you might as well take the card that has the higher ceiling, depending on how the rest of the draft goes. So that's it. That's Those are the cards that I'd look for. And those are kind of the like meta considerations in terms of like what you want to be thinking about, how you want to be positioning yourself, why you would do this stuff. So I'm going to turn it over to Twitch for questions. So any questions uh, you have that you don't feel like I've uh, addressed, Please enter them in Twitch chat now. And I want to thank the newest patrons of uh, Drafting Archetypes. So thank you to Arcadius and Calvin. Really appreciate the support. If anyone else is interested in joining the Patreon and supporting the podcast, uh, check out patreon.com slash draftingarchetypes, where you can look at the perks that we offer and um, join if it sounds appealing to you. You can get some discounted coaching rates and access to logs and podcast notes and polls and whatever else. So that little uh, self-promotion advertisement, whatever, out of the way. Anyone have any questions for me? Circotype sounds a lot more like finding Strixhaven-style value versus just uh, to fit better rares and uncommons into different colors in one deck. Question mark. I think that Often, the driving motivation behind the deck when you should be in it is to play the better rares and uncommons that you see. And certainly, 
while I spent time talking about the commons, because that's where a lot of the uh, bulk of the picks is going to be, what actually matters is you've seen some strong uncommons and rares that are pulling you in multiple directions. And so you're trying to figure out how to get your deck to let you cast those things. Um, so while I you know, kind of glossed over that, absolutely the goal here is get more strong high rarity cards into your deck, especially the powerful gold uncommons, but also, you know, any of the busted rares, you know, random twilights and planeswalkers and stuff like that. Getting to play those when they're not in your primary colors is a huge benefit. And then to the extent that the rest of the focus was on getting value out of your commons, again, it's not so much about like, oh, the value commons are the best thing to be doing. You should be prioritizing them. Here's how to play all the value commons. But it is the case that when you have these powerful high rarity cards, then if you have defensive and value-oriented commons, those cards are going to be really good at letting you play a longer game to find your powerful higher rarity cards. Um, so like a hidden part of the value of a card like Axiom Engraver or Testament Bearer in this kind of deck is that you presumably have really strong cards that you're looking for, and the extra cards that they let you see makes it a lot more likely that you'll get to cash those cards. So absolutely, while it wasn't the focus, a hidden part of what's going on with this archetype is definitely taking advantage of higher rarity cards, and you likely won't find yourself in this spot. You likely won't get pulled in this direction without some powerful cards that you're trying to hold on to that are uh, pulling you here. Next up, how do you feel about card draw spells and how many would you recommend playing? What types of draw spells? For the most part, I don't really want to play dedicated card draw spells in this deck. I like Axiom Engraver and Testament Bearer, as mentioned, as ways to see more cards without needing to take a turn off of playing to the board to do it. I think that cards like the Proliferate Anticipates and the Draw 3 Proliferate in blue are both reasonable card draw slash card selection spells to play to find powerful cards. But I think that because this kind of deck can get enough value out of permanence that I think that you can end up playing a long enough game to like find the stuff that you need without spending mana in a dedicated way to find the stuff that you need. The opportunity cost of a card that doesn't contribute to the board I think usually ends up being too high. Also, um, blue, I think, is the co color that contributes least to uh, what I'm looking to do here. And so playing a cheap blue card selection spell or expensive double blue card draw spell is going to pull my mana in a way that I'm usually not looking to have it pulled. Outside of that, the card draw that's available is stuff like the three mana black uh, lose two life, draw two cards, give your opponent a poison, which again, the cost here in terms of mana and life is just way too high to want to play if you can avoid it, especially in a deck that's really not taking advantage of the poison counter. Follow-up that one might assume that I would want to use uh, to prioritize card draw to find the better cards. Again, I'm hoping that the card draw that I'm using to find these better cards is either the incidental card advantage that comes from the cards that I want to play anyway, or really just the additional draw steps that I get from prolonging the game. 
Also, incidentally, a danger in this format of playing this way and prolonging the game is that you risk dying to hazardous, bla uh, uh, hazardous blast. I think it's blast. The red deal and damage all, all of your creatures and they can't block uh, sorcery. And to avoid dying to that, you really just want to prioritize removal and life gain in the form of oil, oil gorger, troll, and um, weirdly, very critically, uh, cruel grimnark. Because in this kind of situation, often your opponent is holding just the hazardous blast to try to, you know, wait for a spot where it's going to be lethal. And the Grimnark is kind of your best chance to uh, snipe the Hazardous Blast before your opponent gets to kill you with it. But you, you need to have enough removal to keep the board small to stop them from getting in a spot where they can use it before you uh, Grimnark it away. To comment, the Testament Baron Grimnark summons most splash cards from playing a lot of Jund. Yeah, I, I think that, like, Jund splashing Testament Bearer and Grimnark is very likely the most common execution of this strategy. I think, you know, Jund splashing uh, Grimnark and Testament Bearer or uh, like Naya, where you're the same kind of red-green core splashing Indoctrination Attendant and Planner Disruption are both very reasonable. Sometimes you can end up in a spot where you're like green splashing all of that sort of stuff um, or green-red splashing that stuff or you know, green-white splashing the black stuff or whatever. There's a question about Phyrexian Atlas. I strongly hope to avoid playing Phyrexian Atlas if you have the right curve, if you have, like, you know, all two drops, not very many three drops, and then kind of, like, more fives than fours, probably. I could see playing uh, an Atlas, but I would the Atlas being the three mana artifact that taps for a man of any color, and if you uh, if your opponent's corrupted, does it damage them? I think it is a lower priority slash worse way to fix your mana most of the time than Prophetic Prism. I have actually had a curve, I believe, where I've played Atlas over Prism, but for the most part, I don't think that you would prefer to use Atlas uh, as part of your like plan to fix your mana. But again in a pinch with the right cards, especially very, very critically, the exact right curve for it, it can be playable. So there's a comment that in the draft that I did just before recording this, I kind of started in this lane and then narrowed down to two colors. Um, this was a spot where I started with Kaito. And then uh, in my second pack, there was a Vorak and nothing really good in blue and black. There are actually a bunch of other strong cards. There was a Terramorphic Expansive Vorak an evolving adaptive and a cinder slash ravager i took vorak figuring that it was the left me the most open without sacrificing power like technically the terramorphic expanse is more open but the vorak seemed enough stronger i took the vorak and then i kind of transitioned into blue green planning to splash kaito in pack one but then uh realized that green wasn't really open and black was there was just that one fluke pack that happened not to have any blue black and ended up navigating into straight blue-black because it was just open enough that there wasn't really any reason to play more colors. I do think that in general, you want to be trying to navigate into a two-color lane. And this is, uh, you know, when that doesn't present itself as an option and when you have, like, very strong cards that you're attached to. But I do think that this is still primarily a two-color format. 
follow-up question. Could Malkator, the rare blue-white uh, creature that makes a golem, lead you to this path? Any any gold card is more likely than any monocolored card to lead you this way. You know, if you end up uh, taking a strong gold card early and then one of the colors is open and the other one isn't, but you still want to splash the strong card, um, you know, it's not hard to imagine that you like take Noctor and then you end up with some indoctrination attendance because you prioritize them really strongly or really highly since you started with uh, Noctor, but then maybe blue isn't open somehow or like you don't find good blue cards and maybe you end up transitioning to like green, white, splash blue so that you can play the Noctor rather than giving up on the synergy that you have between that and your indoctrination attendance. Um, that sort of thing is very likely with uh, that, as with a lot of other gold cards. So, yeah, absolutely. All right. I think we're going to wrap it up there. Thanks for tuning in, everyone. Next week, we'll be back with more Phyrexia um, All Be One. I've had some people ask me about Strixhaven. I'm, of course, not going to be covering Strixhaven because I already covered all of it during Strixhaven. If you are, Currently interested in drafting Strixhaven online, remember that the archives for this podcast exist and have episodes uh, discussing Strixhaven in detail. And to the best of my recollection, the advice offered in them still holds up to how I've been drafting the deck currently. In particular, I would highly recommend the uh, episode on Blue Black and Strixhaven for uh, kind of the best summary of my approach to the format. Further, there is a new set coming out on Arena shortly, which is Shadows Over Innistrad Remastered. I typically try to focus only on retail releases, um, the major uh, releases that are played both on Arena and um, in paper and on Magic Online, so that uh, players uh, who primarily or exclusively play on any platform um, are still you know, I'm, I'm still speaking to the format they're playing. Um, however, uh, I think that I might want to dedicate a bit of time to Shadows Over Innistrad, specifically because I know that there will be an arena open uh, with the format. So I suspect, and I haven't looked into uh, the timing in detail here, but I suspect there will be uh, at least one episode focusing on Shadows over Innistrad uh, to help prepare people for that arena open. Um, anyway, uh, that's it for uh, this week, and have a good week, and I'll see you next week. Speed.